It is not going to get old to talk about how we just moved into a new building. <laughs> Can we celebrate that? We're in a building. After 10 years of being mobile, we've been in this building now for three months, and uh, I'm going to have endless stories that I can tell in sermons about getting into this building. And so in the process of getting in here, uh, it, there were so many tools involved. Oh my goodness. Uh, raise your hand if you had a tool stolen from this building. That's a lot of you. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of tools involved, and when we first got here, it was just a bunch of like scrapers and shovels getting like tile off the ground and stuff out of the ceilings. We had reciprocal saws and hammers and sledgehammers and crowbars. We rented a big old like grinder, and we grinded all this this concrete smooth. We went out in the yard. We used shovels and all kinds of stuff. We had a big old tractor. We dug trenches. I mean, tools, 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 tools. And if I had to ask myself, what is the most valuable tool that we had in the 17 months of working on this space, it would be a toss-up. The screwdriver, the drill, is actually probably at the top of the list. But I don't think we could have done any of this without this tool. See if you recognize this puppy right here. This was our giant yellow dumpster. How many of you were here on a day when we filled this thing from empty to full in one day? Anybody ever do that? I did it so many times. So I called Maria this week, and uh, she's our contractor, and said, hey, uh, how many times did we fill up that dumpster? According to our best records, our receipts, get a number in your head. How many times do you think we dumped this dumpster? 22. 22 dumpsters full. Wow. That is a lot of trash. <laughs> it's a lot of garbage. But what's amazing is we went from, if you got the chance to walk through this place when we first got it, it needed a lot of work. It needed some TLC. It needed a lot of renovation. And none of this, which is now beautiful, put together, clean lines, clean edges, basic colors, the floor is beautiful, the ceilings are just, none of it would have been possible had we not been able to take out the trash. This is true in our spiritual lives as well. Today I want to talk about a spiritual dumpster process. Uh, we're in this teaching series. This is actually the final week of this series. We're called Thrive. And it's based on one of our five core values. And you can see them posted above our coffee bar in the lobby. We wanted to make it sure it was in front of our face all the time. What are we about, you know, here at Adventure Church? One of our solid core values is the value of, to, we value owning your growth. Like in any growth in your life, you got to own it. You can't get healthy or physically fit or, or, in, or educated without at some level going, I'm going to put in the work, right? I'm going to do this thing. No one can do it for you. And when it comes to our spiritual growth, we've got to own it. We've got to say, I'm going to do this thing. I'm committed to it. We've talked about uh, some pretty important concepts. The most important one is this, and I want to point your eyes to something uh, that we've got in the room. Um, we, we have the idea that owning your growth, though that's something that you're supposed to do, you don't have to do it by yourself. That was the first week. I want to encourage you to be in community. For owning your growth. So we talk about small groups, uh, which are groups that meet in people's houses and they discuss Bible and they do life together. We talk about Bible studies. We talked about uh, having a rabbi in your life, someone that's a mentor that you can go to and say one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two or one-on-three that says, listen, I, I got questions. I want to be like the way that you're following Jesus. I want to follow him like you do. And so what we've done is we've kind of taken a survey throughout the month, uh, we've been calling it the Own Your Growth Survey. So I see a few cards in the chairs. There's also some back at the, the, the uh, windowsill back there with the ink pens. And so if you haven't had a chance to fill out one of these things, it just has three simple questions on it. So if you see one around you, grab it. But they basically say this. They say, they say are you in a discipling relationship right now? Are you? Can you point to an area in your life, people in your life that, that you're allowing to help grow you? That's a yes or no question. Actually, I think we have other on there because sometimes it's like, well, kind of. I don't know. 
The second question is, if so, what does that look like? It's just a self-assessment thing. I'm meeting with people regularly. I have someone that I call, uh, I listen to a podcast, like whatever, what's the thing where you're growing in that way? And the third one is this, and all of this, by the way, is optional, but the third one is this, would you like help owning your growth? And so a lot of you have turned in those cards. We've had a handful that said, yes, I would like help. You don't have to put your name and phone number and email and stuff on there. That's completely optional. But if you really want help, put it on there. And uh, every time we've gotten a card in, we have reached out to those people and we've said, listen, uh, let, this is what we've got going on right now. Uh, we're hoping in January to launch some new groups and things like that. So we're going to have some more right around the corner. Owning your growth doesn't have to be done by itself. But the rest of it does. You got to take the points in your life to say, do I want to grow in my faith? Do I want to get closer to God? Do I want to have answers to hard spiritual questions? And today what I want to talk about is the junk that's in the way. The trash. In a word, the word is sin. You know, sin. Sin is, there's sinful acts, sinful habits, sinful thoughts, sinful secrets. And a sin is essentially doing anything that is out of line with what God wants us to do. Like, so if there was a target, you missed the target, or anything that he's telling you to do that you don't do. Like, maybe he put some boundaries around some things, and you're like, I'm going to live outside the boundaries. That's sin. And the main idea of sin is this, that God has set up an ideal way for your life to work. And when we live outside of that ideal way, we're, at best, not living our best life, but at worst, we're disobeying God. And we're hurting our chances at being spiritually healthy. And the process of taking out that trash, that sin, there's probably a lot of different ways you could define it. But I want to use the word repentance today. It's probably the most common word you see in scripture in relationship to how we own our growth. And repentance is essentially this, to turn your heart away from sin and back to God. So whether it's at a 180 degree turn, whether it's a 90 degree turn, whether it's just like one or two degrees every now and then, I just got to keep course correction, course correction. Repentance is the process of taking out the trash. To go to God and say, listen, I got this mess. I want to be renewed. I want to be made whole. I want to be the person that you created me to be. But man, I got some mess in my life that I've got to throw in the dumpster. I got to get it out of the way so that I can serve you. So we're going to look at a story in the Bible today in the Old Testament where we see a guy go through that process. If you got your Bible today, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel. I always like to say this. If you need a Bible, take one from us. we got a stack of them on a shelf by the door as you leave. You're welcome to go get one anytime during any of our services. Or as you leave today, like if you don't have a good readable version of the Bible of your own, take it. Take it home with you. Put your name in the front cover. Or you want to borrow it on a Sunday morning and just put it back when you leave. That's totally fine, too. We want everybody to have a good Bible. We'll be in 2 Samuel, which if you haven't looked it up recently, you might need to use your index in the front of the Bible. That's totally not against the rules. But 2 Samuel is one of like six books that goes through lives of the kings of Israel. So Israel is the big nation that's discussed in the Old Testament. It's the nation that Jesus is eventually born out of. We might more commonly know them as the Jewish people. But in the book of 2 Samuel, we're going to land in one of the most well-known kings in all of history, a guy named David, King David. Now, let me go ahead and give you this idea. This is a story you might be familiar with. You grew up in church. You've been coming here for a while. You've been reading your Bible for some time. You might hear the story and be like, I already know this. I already know everything there is to know about David. So I don't need to listen. You're wrong. Okay, the word of God is living and active and it will pierce your heart even if you've already heard the story, okay? I look at the kings in the Old Testament and I feel like I can relate to them a lot. I mean, I'm not a king. I don't have like a government of my own and like millions of dollars at my disposal or anything. But I think that all of us can sort of relate to the notion of being a king, especially as Americans. Because I think each one of us gets the opportunity to kind of build our own little kingdom. We talk about this a lot, don't we, here? We get to build our own little kingdom make our own little edicts and have our own little morality 
and pick the things that we want to pick that we want to do and, and not do the things that we don't want to do. Because I'm the king of my life, right? When I look at the kings, by and large, in the Old Testament, most of them were not godly. Most of them denied the precepts of God. Most of them went against what he said. And most of them find themselves making the nation of Israel farther and farther and farther from God. And at the heart of that is repentance. Their unwillingness to turn from sin and turn to God. And we land in the life of a guy named David, a real-life king who gets way too caught up in temptation and sin. But then we find what his journey looks like when he deals with it. So we're going to begin in something that sounds kind of like a fairy tale. This is Second Samuel chapter 11, by the way. I don't think I told you that. Chapter 11, verse 1. It kicks off a little bit like a Chronicles of Narnia book, but it's real life. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, it's like there's football season, there's Christmas season, this was war season, David sent Joab, who's the general of the army, with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So David was a warrior king. Something you got to understand about him is he was on the front lines of battle a lot. He's a guy who held a sword and had killed some people for his country. Like this, this is a, he's, he's not just like an administrative king. He'd been in battle many times, but his nation had grown to a point of prosperity. Uh, up until this point, Israel had never seen prosperity like this. They'd done really well. Truthfully, because David, above all other things, was a godly king. He was famous for writing songs and, and, and psalms. In fact, his psalms exist today in the book of psalms that we have in our Bible today. That People for generations to this day have worshipped to poems that David wrote. He was a good king. He was a revered hero. He was honorable. He was very godly. Even better, the battle was going really well. It says they were just destroying the Ammonites and at Rabbah. Like things were going really well for his, his nation. But as his army was fighting successfully on foreign soil, David starts to lose a battle with temptation at home. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So Jerusalem is, is built on this little geography lesson, on this, on this hill. I mean, a mountain, really. And, and at the top of the mountain is the palace. It's better, uh, it's better land. And so kind of the way things worked is they, they had these roofs that were flat, and they used them like patios. It's very common in that part of the world. And as you go down the mountain, really the more wealthy people live closer to the top of the mountain. The poor people live far away from the center of the city. And if you're standing on the top of your house, you can see people's house down lower in, you know, in elevation than you. Now, odds are that this woman had no idea that David could see her bathing. It was common to bathe outside. There's not indoor plumbing. And there, she probably had a little area set up that was fine and modest and whatever. So she's out there doing her thing, just doing hygiene. David walks out, and he does a thing that you might do. Walk outside and be like, oh, yeah, there's the neighbors there. Oh. Now, what he saw got his attention, as you might expect. Most decent people would go, ooh, oh. Pardon me, ma'am. <laughs> Go along with your day. That's not what David does. So, verse 3. David sent someone to find out about her. The man comes back. Well, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he sends somebody to check out this girl, which, first of all, is creepy. Who does this? Okay. Hey, uh, the king was uh, watching you take a bath earlier, and I uh, was wondering what your name is. I don't know. How does that conversation go? But he goes in, finds out who lives there. But remember something. David is the king. He has the ability to make his own rules. Generally, he gets whatever he wants. David really messes up when he hears the report of who this person is. She's Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. First, Eliam. This is a guy that David knew. He's got this elite-like group of sort of army ranger guys. They're hardcore. They're called David's Mighty Men. And one of them was a guy named Eliam. This is one of his close friends. Eliam had risked his life on multiple occasions for David. They'd go into battle together. They'd slept in you know, tents together out in the wilderness. They'd, they'd scheme things together. He knows this guy. In fact, I have a hard time believing he didn't know that like, his family lived right there. You know where your friends live. You're not curious who that might be. But even worse, Uriah the Hittite was also one of David's soldiers. Now, I don't know if David knew this or not. There were a lot of soldiers. But when David hears who it is, this is a friend of mine and his son-in-law, his daughter, they're my neighbors, it should have stopped right there. She's married, but David's the king. It was thanks to men like Eliam and Uriah that David could sit at home in the lap of luxury because they're off keeping their nation free from the invaders. Now, I know most of you have probably heard this story, and that's why I said that earlier. Don't, don't turn it off because you're like, oh, yeah, I know what happens, and then this happens. Seriously, put, put yourself in a moment where you are now deliberately making the decision to do something that you know is wrong. You ever been there? I have. Okay, let's do it anyway. Verse 4, so David sends a messenger to go get her. So she came to him, and he slept with her. It says, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. That's a cultural thing and a religious thing, but I'll give you just a cliff's note between the lines thing that you need to read in this. This would have been in her monthly cycle, the time when she was also most fertile, able to, able to conceive. She goes back home, verse 5, and the woman conceived, and she sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. That's the story. What do you do when you realize you've messed up? It says a lot about you. Just play it out in your brain real quick. What do you do when you realize, I messed up? I went too far. I did something I shouldn't have done. Whatever. Uh, I think a lot of us have this sequence that David's about to go through. I think, I think step one is what we call Operation Cover-Up. Operation cover-up is, I mean, you get home real quick, and you just like uh, uh, hide it under the rug, put it in the closet, delete the internet history, whatever it is. <laughs> Your heart's going real fast. You're sweating a little bit. Just cover it up. Make it go away. Pretend like it didn't happen. Okay, because if nobody knows, then it's not bad, right? David goes into operation cover-up. He calls his general. He says, hey, uh, send Uriah home. Send a messenger out. You know Uriah the Hittite. Find him. Send him home. I, I got a... Uh, I got a present for him. Uriah comes to the house. And he says, Uriah, man, dude, you've been out fighting the battles? What's up, buddy? Probably like an awkward handshake because he's all nervous. Hey, but come on in, man. Listen, I got a feast for you. I, I invited your wife over. Is it Beth, 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 Bathsheba? Bathsheba, that's it. I haven't seen her in, I don't know if we've ever met. 
Come into the house, they have a meal, I don't know. And, and then he says, listen, man, you've been such a faithful soldier. I want to give you a gift. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some time off, man. Take some time off. Go home, kick your feet up, spend some time with your wife. Wink, wink. Then you can go back to battle when you feel like you're rested up. Cover it up. Bathsheba's pregnant. Let's make it look like it's Uriah's baby. Then uh, we're off the hook. Uriah turns out to be a stud. Listen to what he says. Verse 11, Uriah says to David, excuse me, sir, uh, the ark, which is you know, this, the, the presence of God, they would march before the army. So it's like a very important uh, relic of Israelite history. The ark and Israel are in Judah. They're staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men, are, they're camped in open country. So how could I go into my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? Surely as you live. I will not do such a thing. Oh, wow. What a guy. You passed the test there, Uriah the Hittite? Yeah, yeah I was just that, yeah, right? That's good. Yeah, man, head, head on back to war then. Operation cover-up doesn't work, right? This guy turns out being too noble and doesn't take the bait. What do you do when you're in a mess? Operation cover-up doesn't work. Quickly, we jump to step two, which is, as we all know, all together now, Desperate times call for desperate measures. <laughs> oh, shoot. Uh, uh, so he scrambles. Okay, so, so he's got an idea. All right, all right. Uriah wants to go back to the battlefront. Maybe I could make Uriah go away. He begins to plot Uriah's murder. He writes a letter, and he gives it to Uriah. He said, hey, will you take this to Joab on your way? Aye, aye, sir. Anything for king and country. And he carries this letter, look at it, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. He sent it with Uriah, and in it he wrote, Dear, my dearest Joab, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah, the Hittite, died. <sighs> problem solved. Problem solved. Feel a little bit guilty about it, but at least, wait a second. The baby. Okay. So he kicks into part two of the plan, because as, as Bathsheba's little baby bump is starting to grow, I mean, he's got weeks before people start asking questions, wondering where this baby came from. They know Uriah hasn't been home. They're probably talking about it. Man, Uriah came, didn't even come to the house. Wow, what a guy. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife, can, can we just feel this moment for a second? When she heard that her husband was dead. She mourned for him. That's terrible. But after a time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. You know what? Let me help you out. Come into my house. I'll take care of you. Your, your husband died serving my country. I'm the king. I can provide for you. Looks really good on the outside. She became his wife. And she bore him a son. 
But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You know, sweeping sin under the rug doesn't work because it's still there. It's ugly. It smells bad. Eventually, something's going to be like, you got something in your life going on, man? What's going on? Trying to cover it up doesn't work. Trying to rationalize, improvise, think on your feet doesn't work. You know why? Because God's eyes are everywhere. He saw the whole thing. He sees the depths of our desires. Jesus teaches about this and talks about the things that we think are often as bad as the things that we can do. He knows our motivations. So as far as the world was concerned, David looked pretty good. Man, what a, what a guy. He took this widow into his house. He's going to take care of her. Oh, they're going to get married. I love a good royal wedding. It's probably on NBC. They watch the whole thing. But it says... God was displeased. We put on airs to look good for the world, but what really matters? The only way to deal with sin, plan A doesn't work, plan B doesn't work. You probably have a plan C, D, E, and F because we're pretty good at this. Those things don't work. The only way to deal with sin, this is for the note takers, okay? This is for the rest of your life, is to get God involved. Our sin is an offense to God. Therefore, to make it right, we need to make it right with God. During the time of the kings, God dealt with sin a lot of the same ways he does with us now. But he had these people called prophets. And the prophets would come around. When you think prophet, you might think like, uh, you know, some fantasy novel that you read or a movie that you saw. And the prophets see the future and they've got crystal balls and they're like, you know high as a kite all the time. Like, that's not what a prophet is in the Bible. The word, the word prophet, the, the, the role of prophet was almost more like a preacher or a pastor. They would have the word of God, and their goal was to come out into the world and just be like, this is what God's saying about things. This is what needs to happen right now. Often they might not even be hearing, like, the God. They just know what God's word says. So they're just, they're preaching. They're preachers. And the way that God would often deal with the kings is he would send a, a notable prophet of the time to go talk to the king. At the time, there was a guy named Nathan. He was a prophet during David's time, and uh, he goes to deal with David and talk to him. So let, let's look at verse 12. Let's look at the first sentence. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Okay, but pause there, because I want to remind you something. David is still the king. In his realm, he's the most powerful person in the world. You don't just walk into the king's quarters and be like, uh-uh, bad king, uh-uh. No, because a lot of kings would be like, um, off with his head. <laughs> Throw him into the dungeon until he is eating his own clothes, you know. Like kings, many kings after David would kill prophets because they didn't want to hear what they had to say, okay. So Nathan's not just going to just trounce him. I mean, he could. He wasn't scared of the king. But he wants to catch the king so the king can begin to hear and understand in his own heart what's just happened. So the way that he does it, he tells a little story. Now, David's going to think it's a real story. It's actually more of a parable, but he doesn't know that. Let's just read it. So we'll start again at uh, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, David, uh, so there's these two men in a certain town here. and, And one was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. 
It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, David, remember, he's still a good king. Like, he's been a good king up to this point. He really cares about his people. He doesn't want injustices happening. And so he's infuriated. And in verse 5, he says, he says David, burn with anger against that man. He said to Nathan, Mm, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. That's the right response. How dare you be taking advantage of this poor guy and this lamb that was so special to their family that they can't replace. But Nathan uses that moment to drop this bomb. He says, David, you are that man. David could have reacted in a lot of different ways right here. He could have been like, oh, no, you didn't. Okay. No, you don't here coming in here telling me that I did something. Or he could have done that. He could have, he could have denied it. What? I'm that man? What do you mean? What I appreciate about David, though, I really like David, is that in the moment, he, he's, he picked up what Nathan was putting down. Mm. Right. Right. I took something from someone that wasn't mine, I destroyed a family, took a life, and he owns it. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, mm, you got me. I have sinned against the Lord. It's a very short exchange. I imagine there were a lot more words exchanged, but this is the summary. It says, Nathan replied, well, the Lord has taken away your sin, and you're not going to die. The act of repentance is taking my life that was aimed at sin and redirecting it towards God. Often when you've worked with your kids or your coworkers, sometimes someone's just like, I'm sorry. And you're just like, you're not sorry. It's, it's hard to measure someone's sorrow, their repentance, the only way really to measure it is through their, their actions. But what we know from the rest of David's life is that he truly, truly, truly repented of this sin. There's going to be sort of a happy ending, but I want to point something out. Because sometimes we miss this when it comes to our sin. And that's that sins have consequences. They have consequences. Even if you're really sorry, even if you repent, even if you want to turn your life around, there's still residual consequences because of the way life works. David deals with a lot of fallout from the mistake that he made. Uh, first of all, there's still a baby. Sin has consequences that often affect, affect your, your family. The way that it plays out here is really rough. Uh, David and Bathsheba, they lose that baby. I've, I've walked with friends who have lost a baby several times. It's hard. And, you know... That's, that's part of what God says is going to happen because of this. Don't worry about the baby. God's, God's grace for infants is unborn baby is huge, okay? That baby had it good. But the sorrow that David and Bathsheba had to walk through, that was rough. Sin has consequences. And so if you take your junk to the dumpster, 
it's important to understand, like, stuff doesn't immediately just get better. This stuff, this lady, when I was in high school, and she was this wise old lady that went to my church, she says, I've learned that if you dig yourself a hole, it takes at least twice as long to get that dirt back in the hole. <laughs> sin has consequences. Um, another consequence of David's sin is that, uh, imagine if 3,000 years after you did the worst thing you ever did, imagine if people were still using it as illustrations of what sin looks like. To this day, we're like, you want to see sin? Let me tell you about David. <laughs> this guy, he was up on a rooftop and his neighbor. Like, it's your darkest moment, okay? And it's in a book forever. And people are studying it for like what not to do. Like, that's part of the consequence of David's sin. Sin has consequence. Most consequence has immediate, most sin has immediate consequence. Like, it'll just get you right away. When you mess up, there might be guilt. There might be problems. Sometimes it leads to consequences like debt or humiliation. Maybe you'll lose a job. You'll lose a friend. You go to jail. Maybe there's an addiction that forms out of it. But it's actually not the immediate consequences that are the worst. It's, it's the longer consequences. The biggest consequence of sin left unchecked is the eternal consequence. That sin, a life lived in sin, puts you outside of the presence of God. Not that he can't come into your life and help you out because he does. But that you're by your decision pushing him away. We rarely talk about hell at our church, but I'll tell you this. Some people say, like, why would a loving God send people to hell? And one, of the, one of the greatest explanations of that I, I have seen and heard is this. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Like, separation from God is a choice that we make. I would rather be the king right now. I don't want you to be the king. I'm going to live my life the way that I want to. And I'm going to live with the consequences. May they be eternal or not. And so in terms of owning your growth, dealing with our sin is something that we got to take care of. What do you do when you mess up? You got to take the trash out. Uh, we don't know all the steps that David took. Um, I think there was a lot he had to deal with, probably with Bathsheba. She was probably angry at him. You think she was like, oh, David, you're so cute. No, everyone else said that to him. But she was like, you jerk. <laughs> I had a life. I appreciate you marrying me, but dang. How long did that resonate in her mind? We don't know all the things he had to do, but one thing that we do know is that he took it to God. The only way to deal with sin is taking it to God, let God get involved. He spent a lot of his life committing his prayer thoughts to poetry, writing them down. And I told you the book of Psalms is mostly written by him. And Psalm chapter 51, if you want to turn there, is a, is a song that David wrote in the aftermath of this Bathsheba mess. I want you to read it. I, I'm going to read some of it to you now. And I want you to know that this psalm is an amazing prayer to pray over yourself as you're taking stuff to the trash. I have used this so many times in my life. When I don't even know what to say, I've just returned to Psalm 51 and I've, I've, I've sang it as a prayer. I have meditated on it. I've written parts of it down. This is what David says. Have mercy on me, O oh God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So are you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. 
This is so true. It's so hard to say. Like, I messed up. There are consequences. And God, you, you are right to let me live in these consequences. And you can read the rest of it on your own. I want to skip to verse 10. Because this, this particular thing has been the most uh, common refrain for me as I work through my own sin. Lord, create in me a pure heart, O oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of my bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praises. You do, do not, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you God, will not despise. Once David comes to his senses, he hits his knees in prayer, and he asks God for a fresh start. Created me a pure heart, O oh God. Come in with your wrecking ball and your sledgehammers and your crowbars and your reciprocal saw and your concrete grinding machine. Clean me out. We spend a lifetime building our own kingdom. And so often the renovation has to be drastic. So often people will turn to God in a moment of desperation. And I've baptized a lot of people who a year or two or three later are right back in the filth. Because they wanted the feeling, the mountaintop of going, yeah, yeah, God is good. But they didn't want to do the work of hauling that junk to the dumpster. Of going into relationships that they had no business being in and say, this is not honoring God. I need to do something different. Of taking habits in their life and say, this is not honoring God. I need to do something different. Of looking at the way they treat people or spend their money or spend their time. Said, if I'm going to live for God, man, I got to take this stuff to the dumpster because God's got something so much better. Now, hear me, guys. This, this dumpster mess, this isn't just you, okay? You can haul this stuff to the dumpster all you want to. The, the, the only power that has the strength to come into your soul and remove that and wash it white as snow is the presence of Jesus. So don't, don't hear me saying that the only way to get right with God is just to work your butt off all the time. That'll never work. There are whole sects of Christianity that, that, that practice it that way. First, as week one of this lesson, get on a knee in submission before the one true king. And then with his help and his blessing and his strong hands, start the cleanup. Repentance is a change in our mind that leads to a change in actions. And I'm going to tell you this, it's a daily thing. David was like, oh, man, I messed up. You know, I've displeased God. But next time he went out on his porch and saw some neighbors and some ladies, he had to check himself. And next time he was out to be a king all about his own kingdom, he had to check himself. And repentance is a daily act of saying, course correct, course correct. 
course correct, and that is owning your growth. So every week I try to have a challenge for us to take home, and I got one that I think we can all do. No matter where you are in your spiritual life, you're just starting today or you've been doing it for decades, this is the challenge. This week, own your growth by using Psalm 51 as a prayer of repentance. I want to challenge you to open up your Bibles. Be bold, okay? Use a paper Bible, one that might give you a paper cut if you read it too fast. There's something about the tactile nature, nature of opening up a book. Because if you're looking at all your scripture on your phone all the time, there's nothing wrong with that. I can't stand here and condemn it. But I'll tell you this. You also get all of your other notifications on your phone. And all of your other distractions happen on your phone. And I find that often I'm distracted more when I'm on my device than when I'm on my paper Bible. So if you need one, we got one in the lobby for free. Make sure you take it home with you. Open up a Bible to this week. At least once. Maybe you need to do it every day. Psalm 51. Read it once so you can take it in, and then take time and read it as a prayer. Some of it's very specific to David's scenario and his culture, and so you'll look at that and be like, huh, my enemies, whatever, what are we talking about? We're going to have a battle? Like, but the gist of it is powerful. Created me a pure heart, oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Own your growth by using Psalm 51 as a prayer of repentance. You remember that big dumpster that we had out front? 17 months it was out here. Thing was ugly. 22 times. They kept putting it in the wrong space. We call them back. Like, could you put the, please put the dumpster. It's in the field. We want to carry it just straight out the door. Get your dumpster in the right place. But man, take a look at this building. Isn't it cool? What a, what a tangible representation of what it looks like when you take out the trash. Put in the work, guys. I love this scripture from 2 Peter 3.9. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There is hope after your sin. But the only way to deal with that sin is by taking it to God. Own your growth, take it to him, and we'll thrive. Let's pray together.